I want to begin this morning by rethinking about a trip that my wife and I took to visit our daughter and her husband. And in order to get to the town where they live in southern Illinois, they, live, uh, they don't live near any large airports, you have to fly into St. Louis, Missouri. And then from there we caught, uh, had to take an airplane that's a single prop airplane with a capacity of 12 people on this plane. In order to go on that plane, you have to report in. Of course, you give them your luggage. They weigh the luggage. No, no big deal there. That's pretty standard procedure. But then they ask you, how much do you weigh? So you tell them your weight. And then you stand on the tarmac, watch them with the luggage. They're putting the luggage in on the wings. They're putting the luggage in in the back. They're putting the luggage in all these different places, making sure it's equally distributed. And then they sort of assign you to wear the seat based probably on your weight. And the whole point of, of this arrangement in this small plane was to distribute the amount of weight on the plane so that what? So they don't have any disaster with all the weight being on one side and the plane having a very serious malfunction. So it's important to have balance in many areas of life. And I think as we think about gospel ministry, which is the book of Acts, trying to help point us to understanding more and more insights as to how gospel ministry is to function, we understand that gospel ministry involves a similar concern regarding balance, keeping an equilibrium when it comes to ministry. There have been many times in church history, unfortunately, when a, when a theological imbalance in ministry has taken place and it led to terrible disastrous effects for example I'm thinking of some not all some Baptists in England in the time of uh, let's say the late 1700s they held to a extreme hyper Calvinist view that said that God would save and bring the nations to Christ without any human involvement or assistance. God will save them. Well, William Carey read his Bible and began to uh, draw the conclusion, they are sorely wrong. That's not the way the Bible presents what God is doing. God works through his people. He's commissioned his people to go. And so Carey wrote a little booklet, a, a pamphlet, in which he tried to regain this biblical balance in understanding gospel ministry. The booklet was called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. In that particular booklet, he argued from Scripture that Christians should take the gospel and make sure that it is communicated to those who don't know Christ, including taking it overseas, taking it into other cultures. And sure enough, William Carey himself blazed the trail. He is the father of modern missions, which we call the new movement of when, when they began to take the gospel cross-culturally in the early 1800s. He traveled to India. He devoted the rest of his life to Bible translation, to education, and to gospel ministry. Carey was used by God to help restore that much-needed balance between the two extremes, or the two elements, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility involved in making known the gospel and ministering the gospel to people. 
So in our passage this morning in Acts 16, I want us to think about these two components, those two boxes that you see in your notes. You'll notice that if we're going to have effective gospel ministry, there needs to be that balance like a scales between the one box on the right of God's sovereign activity, that God is involved in regenerating and guiding and transforming people through His Spirit and through His Word. That's something that only God can do. We need to keep that in balance, that that's what God does. But we also need to keep in balance the other box, which describes the fact that believers are to pursue other people with the gospel in terms of discipleship and evangelism. What I find interesting is that in this passage, we find that these two elements, when they're kept in tension and in balance, how they work together harmoniously, that they work together with a symmetry that's beautiful to see as you, as you read it in this particular text. We're going to look at three examples now of the left-hand side of the equation, the left element, if you will, of human responsibility. We're going to start with those, and then we're going to watch as we get into the, looking at how they had a strategy and they implied their energies and did what they thought that God would have them do. Look at how we balance it out with an understanding of God at work at the same time. Well, first of all, let's look at the strategic forming of a ministry team. They start off by developing this team. One of the first things you learn, end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16, is that Acts was not a lone ranger gospel worker. The Apostle Paul had teamed up, you'll remember, with Silas at the end of chapter 15. And then we re begin reading in the beginning of chapter 16 and notice that they add to this team of these two uh, um, gentlemen. They, hit, go, they go back to the towns of Derby and Lystra and there they arrive and they see a young man who has a very good reputation named Timothy. And soon thereafter, they, name another, they add another person. And you say, well, I didn't read about another person's name in the list. Well, if you look very carefully at verse 10, there's a distinctive change in the pronoun there. The narrative had been, uh, uh, they did this, and they did that, and he did this, and they did that, and they did that. And then in verse 10, it says, and we. And we. Who's the we? It's the writer. It's the author. And the author of Acts is? Thank you. Some of you are awake. That's good. It's Luke. Now, I've thought about why would they add Luke to the mix? Now, they've got three guys. That's all they started out last time with. They lost one, they had two. Why do they need more than three? Well, put two and two together. What happened to Paul on his previous trip? He got stoned. He had some serious danger. I'm sure he was beaten up, had all kinds of health issues. Take a doctor along. Pretty smart idea, right? So he, they include Luke along with Timothy. Each one of these individuals obviously added many skills, many different important elements of their perspectives that they bring, their personalities, it's all helpful. And isn't it true that as members of the body of Christ, that, that if we're involved in this discipling and evangelism, if we're involved in gospel ministry of actually seeking to use the scriptures and apply them to different people's lives and hearts, isn't that work done best when it's done together with other members of the body of Christ? that we're not Lone Ranger ministers. We work together. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. We learn from each other. Some of you weren't here on Wednesday night, but we've had a very helpful time in instructing and carefully encouraging each other in ministry 
And we looked at a, a reminder again of all the different gifts that God gives to the body of Christ. We're not all the same. And so it's helpful to have different people with different gifts and how they interact with unbelievers together and including God's people. It helps to disciple when you have all different kinds of people in the body of Christ. Well, that's what they had here on this team. Now, I'm going to take a little moment and explain something that seems a little controversial, a little strange, a little baffling when you first read it. But I'm convinced that when you join a team, when you join a church, when you're part of other believers and you're sharing together in gospel ministry, it's going to require of us sometimes some adaptation on our part. We're going to have to face some changes we might need to make in our lives. In the situation here, we have one member, Timothy, and he had to, uh, one area of his life that he needed to deal with before he joined this gospel team and began to move out and minister to other people. Now, we know his background here a little bit here. It's also other places in the epistles we understand that Timothy grew up in a family, a divided family, a family in which he had a father who was a Gentile, a non-Jew who is not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of Jesus at all. He had a mother and a grandmother, thank God. He was truly blessed to have a mother and a grandmother who were believers, who happened to be Jewish. And because of that combination of divided family he had never been circumcised growing up. And so Paul, at this point, says, you know, Timothy, it's time in your life to go ahead and have that done. Now, I'm sure that wasn't a very exciting thought. I'm not going to go into all the details about why anyone needs to know all this. It's baffling to me. I don't understand that culture. But Paul and others began to realize this could be a difficulty. And why is that? The difficulty was because had he not been circumcised, it would have been a stumbling point among fellow Jewish people that he's seeking to reach. They say, well, you're a Jew, but you're not even circumcised. You're out of line with the Abrahamic obligations of the covenant God made with the Jewish people. And so in order to remove that kind of hindrance to gospel ministry, he says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and have that done. Now, did he have to have that done? Well, they just spent all of Acts 15, if you've been around the whole chapter is devoted to Paul and the leaders of the church saying, no, 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 you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. We're saved by grace alone, period. And Paul was still bringing those messages from that council, and he's distributing those, verse 4 in the text. And so it's not because of the basis of which he's trying to be saved. It's because for ministry reasons, he's saying, I don't want any kind of stumbling block or issue that's going to cause people to not listen to our team and have a problem with what we're seeking to proclaim. There may be times in our lives where we need to look at the areas that may need to be changed in order to remove possible difficulties and barriers to our being effective in ministry. And one of these, I think, more and more as I'm hearing what goes on, is you need to be very careful in social media. To whom are you linked on social media that is therefore appears on your listing of things that you, it looks as if you're endorsing. Some of those things can be quite foul, quite inappropriate, quite questionable. And sometimes in people looking at what you may say, and, and this also gets into political things, it might be, you get into all sorts of statements and affirmations as if you're rah, rah, rah for something or someone could be problematic down the road in terms of 
your ability to speak the gospel, which has nothing to do with some of these things, perhaps. Just a word of caution. Sometimes we need to be willing to make some changes just to not create stumbling blocks and difficulties of being a gospel um, declarer. So anyway, as we go down through here, we've looked, that's sort of on the, on the left box, if you will, the human responsibility side of things, creating the team. But I want to look, consider the right side of the equation and the balance and ask ourselves, what was it that really qualified Timothy to be, even be asked to be on the team? Who was it that got this young man from this divided family background into the place where he was ready for gospel ministry and to be used of God on this team? you look at first second sorry second timothy chapter one if you got your bible there just look real quickly over there second timothy chapter one provides a wonderful insight here of timothy and the fact that while blessed to have a believing mother and a believing grandmother and let's never minimize that if you've come from a family and you've had divide, division spiritually in your home never minimize the impact of that one believer that one faithful believer living the life and, and speaking words of truth and the gospel and the truth of God's word in that home. But would you notice, he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, what is it that changed his heart? Is it, can we say the mother did it? His grandmother did it? Lois and Eunice? No, they are not the ones that changed his heart. Look what it says in verse 9. It's God who saved him. God used the scriptures that were taught, but it's God who saved him. It's God who called him with a holy calling. Not according to his works, nothing that Timothy did it would, would give any reasons to why God dealt with him that way, but according to God's own purpose, God's own grace, which was granted to Timothy in Christ from all eternity. Who can understand that? But what a glorious truth that is. God was working, and God is active working in ways that are far beyond our understanding behind the scenes in the hearts of people who have been exposed to the gospel through the word of God and godly people. Second point I want to draw here in looking at the left box, the box of human responsibility and involvement is to look at the strategic planning that went into ministry opportunities. They strategized, planned gospel opportunities. See, the team that, that, that came together there deliberately chose not to go to Galatia. You remember Galatia is the area where you go around the Mediterranean Sea See, if you go like this, it's going like this. They're going from Antioch over now, north of the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going into that area. They decided not to go there and set up shop and have a ministry center that they created. And they said, okay, we're going to wait for all these people now to come visit us. They want to figure out how to grow as a Christian. They want to understand more about what it means to follow Jesus. Then you come see us and we'll set you straight. As you read through the text, it's very clear that this team decided to make plans in which they're going to go from place to place. They're going to go to these people and visit them on their turf and visit with them face to face and interact with them. Specific provinces, which are like larger, like a county, 
and larger cities that they specifically wanted to go to. And so they endured many long hours of travel through the mountains there, the Taurus Mountains, uh, which are quite challenging to get through, in order to visit and meet with them one-to-one, one-to-to each individual group they went to see. And they plotted out the strategy to revisit the churches, to revisit the cities, it says there in the text, the larger populations, places that they knew would be strategic ministry contexts. Now, I would just think for a moment in light of that particular insight and reflect on the fact, you know, it's not a a lack of faith that says that we're going to organize, we're going to make plans to do gospel ministry. I would say the opposite is true. That faith coupled with planning strategically makes a lot of sense. It is the way to go. It's wise to strategize ministry proposals based on the audience that you're hoping to reach. So, for example, if you have a ministry proposal and you're going to reach international students, which would be a wonderful ministry endeavor, one of the ways to do that, obviously, is to offer free English as a second language classes, which we've done in our church in the past. We had people who had the ability, had the training, and who were able to lead us in that kind of ministry, a wonderful thing, years ago. Would love to see it happen again if somebody has that training and ability. Let me know. Another ministry proposal, for example, to reach grade schoolers might involve, as which we've done in our church and we hope to do this summer, is to have a soccer camp offered free to the community and then promote Vacation Bible School as an opportunity to minister to those grade schoolers. And See, we're beginning to try to do this more in a leadership. We had a meeting yesterday with some of the leaders and we tried to think through how can we be better equipping ourselves to make and have strategic planning of ministering in the community in ways that begin to impact uh, the lives of many people. We welcome your suggestions, by the way. If you have some ideas, if you have a heart, a burden, if you have a concern or a way in which you think we can more strategically reach our community, please let us know. That is the one area of clear human responsibility and participation. They were strategizing and plotting. But will you notice, and and planning, there's an undeniable factor on the other side of of the balance, if you will, in this text. Did you catch it as Jason read it? God is sovereignly chooses at times to rearrange human plans, to rearrange human agendas that we've put forward and put in place. Surely you've seen that happen in your life, haven't you? You say, well, I'm hoping to do this, and then I hope to do this, and then... And then by six months from now, I hope to do this. It didn't happen sometimes. Why is that? Factors that were beyond your control. And as you read the text, looking at verses 6 and 7 specifically, several times you read that God hindered the team. God prevented the team from going what? Well, if you know your map, and again, get your Bible and look at your maps in the back when you're reading this stuff. But it prevented them from going north. He prevented them from going south. They had come from the east. And so what does he do? He points them west. Go west, young men. That's the only option they had available. And so they're on the coast. That's where Troas is. On the coast of the Aegean Sea. They've gone as far west as you can go, unless you want to get in a boat. And while they're in Troas, along the coast, enjoying the view, Paul has this vision. 
of a man from the next area across the Aegean Sea who appears to him in a vision, verse 9. And by the way, Macedonia is, is really a, it's a southeastern section, if you will, of the current country of Turkey. I'm sorry, modern-day Greece, excuse me. Modern-day Greece is what is described now, the southeastern section uh, called Macedonia. It's as if he's in Turkey, and now they're going to move and go to what is modern-day Greece. That's what I meant to say. So this team now is hearing of someone calling them for help, and they think about what's going on. This has been stopped. We can't go here. We can't go here. We had to go this way, and now there's a call to go further on, to get on a ship and go further. And look at verse 10. This team got together, thought about it, probably prayed about it, and they concluded what? God had called us to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. Notice it's a collective, we. Notice that they didn't deliberate and say, well, let's, let's take some time to think on this a little longer, and let's think through this to the point of, of consulting a bunch of people. No, they didn't hesitate. Verse 10 says, immediately they heeded the call. And the team agreed upon a new plan, a new strategy. They didn't ever think of doing this. This was not something they would have ever concluded to do. But they went into a new territory, a new geographical region, where thousands and thousands of people who had never heard the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. And what I find interesting and noteworthy in this text is the submissive attitude of the team. Being willing to say, well, we had our ideas and we thought they were good ideas, but we're willing to lay those aside. We're going to go with what God is doing. He's moving us. He's, he's redirecting us in ways that we would never have gone. Do you know that this is really quite a momentous turning point in history in what you're reading right here in this section of the Scriptures? You say, how so? Because at this point in time, it'll be the first time ever, as far as we know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was carried out of what was considered Asia, the Middle East, into what we know now of as Europe. The gospel, for the first time, moved in, and the seeds of the gospel now were beginning to be planted in what we would call the West. That impacted what? Many of us in our own history, because we have, many of us have uh, roots that come from uh, Europe, certainly impacted uh, many of us in our culture here. And the four members of this ministry team, because they responded to this call with compassion, they moved in another direction. And the call was a call for help. Think about it. All over the world, there are people who are lost, who are longing, who are waiting for spiritual help. In Bangladesh, in Japan, in South Sudan, and many, many, many places. They're waiting for spiritual help. And think about this, all around us are lost people 
who are in need of spiritual rescue. I wonder how many people, take a minute and think for your own, in your own mind, how many people who have never clearly heard the gospel communicated to them in a way in which they can understand it, who live within a five to ten mile radius of this building. The number would surprise and shock, I'm sure, all of us. I wonder, can you hear their cry for help? Does it burden you? Does it seem to say, maybe I need to adjust my agenda a little bit so that this becomes part of more and more on my agenda and the agenda of our church is to say there are many people around us outside these walls who are looking for spiritual help. You say, well, they don't seem like they're looking for it. Every time we try to explain things to them, they seem pretty know-it-all. They seem pretty resistant. Well, that's just some. They still need help. They're blind. A number of us met yesterday, as I said, we're trying to discuss how can we shift our church focus to be more attuned to the needs of this community around us. And we came up with reading a book collectively together as preliminary to our meeting called Autopsy of a Deceased Church, which is really a study of numerous churches over the years who've declined, declined, declined to the point where they really sort of closed up shop. And the guy who did all the survey drew some um, observations about those churches. And he's, he made this comment on one of them. The chapter, I think, was called um, the uh, Great Commission, Omission. And he said this, Members of some of these dying churches were not willing to go into the community to reach and to minister to people. They weren't willing to invite their unchurched friends and relatives. They weren't willing to expend the funds necessary for a vibrant outreach. They, didn't, they, they just wanted it to happen. We just want to have a church that's full on a Sunday morning, for example. But they weren't willing to invest in the prayer it took to undergird that ministry. They want it to happen without sacrifice, without hard work. And so the challenge comes to all of us. If we hear, spiritually speaking, the cries of those around us who are lost and who are looking for someone to explain them the good news of Christ, to what extent are we willing to rearrange our comfortableness, to really invest in praying for people that we know and want to see Lord, direct us in that fashion so that we might connect with people, that we might let it be known that we truly are a caring church about people more than just ourselves, being comfortable in the place we are. Some helpful points here, it seems to me, to meditate on that text and say, have I become spiritually out of touch with listening to what people are crying out for around me? Do we not see the people around us living lives that are broken, spiritually speaking, that they are not full of joy. They do not know the peace that we can have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And their lives are clearly evidencing many, many, many struggles, internal agonizing areas of brokenness and lostness. Well, I want to bring us into one more important point here regarding this balance between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And that has to do with the strategy 
of seeking out people to share the gospel with because the team did very responsibly and in a wonderful way focused on this idea we need to make sure that we're sharing the gospel with people so notice that they went across took the ship went over to the other side of the Aegean Sea landed there in Macedonia they went to the one of the largest towns there Philippi and the strategy normally was to do what well let's hit first the local synagogue we'll go there we'll meet some people we have much in common with them we're all Jewish in our background and so we'll connect with them and then from there we'll see how that response goes we'll move on to those who are not Jewish problem is there was no synagogue can't go there so and the reason why by the way is that some people theorize that it takes there was a requirement you had to have 10 Jewish men meeting and members of a local synagogue in order to get it off the ground and make it a reality and so they don't have those 10 men apparently so they have a bunch of ladies who have gathered there beside the river and they're praying so these, this team shows up and they thought, well, let's pray with these ladies for a while and perhaps we can have some gospel conversations with them. And uh, I'm sure that as they gather with this collective group of women, some of them must have been thinking, well, you know, it sure would have been nice if we'd had a larger, more extensive audience that we can spend some time with here. But will you notice what happened? God honored them for their faithful gospel witness. Here we have among these ladies gathered to pray is a woman named Lydia. She's not just an ordinary, um, average, first century Roman woman. She was highly successful. And if you understand what it's saying here in the text, to deal with the purple fabric and purple materials means that you're dealing with purple dyes. And the purple dyes are very hard to obtain, but they happen to be very, uh, well, uh, very, uh, uh, very much available in her hometown. And so she, early on, must have gotten into this industry. She's made a very good business for himself. And here she is as the successful, well-to-do businesswoman. And yet she is longing for spiritual reality. She's looking for more than just the things of this world. She's a religious woman, but she doesn't know Christ. And it's a reminder that we can run into religious people all around us. Isn't it true about 50% of the population of Long Island is Catholics? Many people who are religious. And here is this woman named Lydia, following rituals, offering up prescribed prayers, but doesn't know God. Like so many religious people, they pride themselves on their morality Oh, look at me. I like to do this and this and this, and I don't like, I'm not doing what these people do, and I don't do what that person does, and I'm, I'm better than the average person. They love to be able to, to emphasize their morality. But just because a person weekly attends services in a temple or a cathedral somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that they have ever heard the gospel of grace. It doesn't mean that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. And what this woman needed and what all religious, self-righteous people need is heart transformation. They need God to change them on the inside. They might have a lot going on up here, but their heart has never been changed. And you'll notice that you and I, when we think of this scale now going back, you and I are privileged and blessed and responsible to make known the gospel to religious people and to irreligious people. That is something that God 
gives us that privilege of, of being his representatives, of being his ambassadors. But will you notice verse 14? The point I'm trying to make here is to bounce this thing out is to say that only God can bring about regeneration. Verse 14, Lydia was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Apparently there were other people who listened, but their hearts weren't opened. Why is it? Why Lydia? Text doesn't say. It just says that God opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Up to that moment, her heart had been closed. Up to that moment, her mind had been blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But God, by His Holy Spirit, transformed her heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And I'm not going to take the time, but in your notes, I've listed for you a number of examples of, it seems like Luke is, goes overboard here in giving emphasis to this other side of that balancing equation of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. He keeps saying God does work in ways in which he mysteriously is the one who's breaking through and changing hearts and changing lives and bringing people to himself as people responsibly make known the gospel. Even Jesus piles on to the long list of evidence in the scriptures, and he says in John 6, 44, I don't know if you're familiar with this text, but it's actually quite profound in what he says. John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can which means ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He does not say no one may come to me as if it's permission. He says no one has the ability to come to me. What does that mean? God is sovereign in that God has to enable people to respond to the message that they're hearing, to see a heart that's changed. And I would dare say that none of the men on this gospel team who went to that group of ladies who were praying there beside that river on that day in advance would have been able to assure you and know full well as a guarantee that, that this woman, Lydia, would be the one who would respond. They had no idea. They were just putting the seeds out there. But God changed her heart. And the evidence of that, Luke provides us as she is willing to be baptized and profess her faith in Christ publicly, along with other people in her home who obviously have heard the gospel. And then she says, I want you to have what I have. I want you to share what I have. I want to get involved in ministry. She opens her heart, and in opening her, opens her, her home and offers hospitality to these people, insisting that they take, take their time to stay there and use her home as their base of ministry. Jonathan Edwards, some of you may know him as one of the greatest theologians ever born on American soil. He was pastoring a church in the 1730s up in New England. And in this church, he has a number of members who are very, very familiar with great theology, who know their Bibles backwards and forwards, uh, who are people who know doctrine. They're well taught. But you know, there's a number of those people in that church whose hearts were not moved by the truth of what they knew in their head. Their heart was still cold, indifferent. And they lacked a true love for God that was evident in how they, in their pursuits and what they treasured and what they were going after in life. And so 
as time went on, Edwards and others continued to preach the word. And there arose a great awakening, is the term used, to describe this movement of God that swept over New England, in which so many people who had attended church for so many years, there in Edwards Church and many other churches, began to have a drastic change within the people who were attending. Those who had been attending for so long began to deeply mourn over their sins. Those who had attended for so long began to to have hearts that were awakened to the wonders of Christ dying for them, paying for their sin, and then Christ being raised from the dead in providing them justification. And following that uh, change of heart, they also began to have a zeal for people who were lost and unbelievers in their witness. And remarkably, a new sensitivity to sin. They began to realize, oh, I'm not going to do this any longer because I know that's offending to God and I have a fear of God that says I don't want to do that any longer. How do you explain this radical change that that, that broke through his church? All sorts of people started coming to Christ. All sorts of people confessed their sins openly. All sorts of people began to flood into the churches. What was the difference? Was it Edwards having PowerPoint in his sermons all of a sudden? Changed the style of music? Edwards thought about it deeply. He was a deep thinker, by the way. You read his his work, you've got to slow down and read it very slowly. And ponder, but he was thinking about what how do you make sense of all that in terms of that equation? Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. And he wrote a book after he thought about all of the radical spiritual changes, the many people coming to Christ during that time of the Great Awakening. And he wrote the book called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Because in Edward's mind, you could not explain it in the human responsibility heart yes they had prayed yes they were preaching good sermons but god broke through in a sovereign and amazing surprising way that you couldn't somehow control all that was going on there what's my point it seems to me that we are called to be faithful to focus on our area of responsibility to say am i going to be faithful to pray Will I spend time in my day praying for the lost, praying for my own internal spiritual needs to seek God and really keep myself spiritually alert here? Am I going to be a person who is praying for my church, our church? Yes, we reached 200 years, but there's no guarantee we're going to reach the next 20 if we don't continue to be more focused on our neighborhood and our community and the lost. We need to be faithful to proclaim the gospel in a sense of zealous proclamation. And to rely on God at that point now for the other side of the equation. Relying and trusting and looking to God. That He would do what only He can do. And that is open the hearts of people whose hearts have been shut toward God. That He would bring them to to life in Christ who are dead in their sins. And only then it seems to me as we find that balance and maintain that, that kind of equilibrium spiritually speaking. Will we move forward as a biblically balanced gospel-centered church that honors Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we
bow before you today. We pray that you would help us to think about our own hearts in light of this scale of balance that we place before us today, Lord, to think about what is it that we're doing? How, how, what evidence in our own hearts, Lord, do we see of zeal for the lost? That we have a sense of, of hatred towards sin, that we have a disgust towards sin that changes the, the choices that we make, that we have a passion to pray and seek your face, Lord. Is, that, is there any evidence of that in our hearts? Are we willing to adapt our agenda and, and to change our plans to be more open to gospel opportunities when you open them up to us? And are we looking for opportunities to, to connect with people who are unbelievers and to have significant conversations and asking good questions and, and providing to them things to read and things to think about and willing to sit down and open our Bibles with them? Father, we pray that for some of us who have become spiritually hard of hearing, we no longer hear the cries of the lost around us. We pray that you would reawaken that in us. We pray that you would help us to capture a sense of compassion that you have for those who have yet to come to Christ. We pray that it might influence our church as each one of us, one by one, we begin to become more interested, more concerned, more burdened for those who remain outside the kingdom. And Father, help us, we pray, as a church, to be more aware of how much we need you to be working, to do what only you can do, that we become a church that truly seeks you earnestly in prayer, that we are crying out to you. We can be effective, we can be organized, we can have all kinds of strategies, Lord, but we are not going to be the people who are going to pull off a revitalization of this church or to see people coming to Christ, seeing people turn from their sins and having a, a zeal for witness, gospel witness, unless you do this, Lord, stirring it up in our midst. And so we cry out to you to do what only you can do. And we pray that you would help us to be responsible for what we can do and must do that you've commanded us to do. By your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen.